I'll share more of this in a moment, but Cheryl and I were able to go to three different churches when we were on vacation. One was my parents' church, and I, I spoke there two Sundays ago. Told them a little bit about Ruth. That's where we are. And uh, last Sunday, we went to two churches. We went to a church of a friend of mine, uh, first service, and then we hopped in the car and drove up the freeway and went to a church that I had served at years and years ago, eight years ago now. Amazing. And uh, it was really interesting. It was fascinating to me to see again and be reminded. Because as a pastor, I rarely get to visit other churches. You probably know this. You know, I can't church hop and see what other people are doing. I just kind of get to hear by way of uh, word of mouth because I'm mostly here. But I was really encouraged, um, partially by what I saw, but more by what I knew was here when we, when we came home. By your hunger, your desire to really listen and to know the will of the Father and to be in His Word. And I can't tell you how much that blesses me. More on that in a minute. Let's open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. As we continue our study there... Just a couple more weeks in Ruth, if you'll bear with me, we're going to spend uh, Wednesday night in chapters 3 and 4 and kind of finish our verse-by-verse study. Next week, I'm likely going to do a little bit more in Ruth. We'll see. We'll see if I can cover it all Wednesday night or if I need some more time in that. But for this morning, I want to talk about something that, well, it's not so much about how you and I feel. And it's not necessarily the type of message where, at least for the most part, uh, will tickle our, our felt needs, our, our wants, our desires. It's more about someone else, someone that uh, we need to be concerned about. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us, Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheep. And thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. Well, then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Well, then she, Ruth, fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, Though I am not like one of your maidservants. Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. As we thank you, Lord, week in and week out for your word, which touches us and speaks to us and teaches us and raises us up as the children you want us to be. And Father, we we need to remember sometimes that though we are children, we are also in the process of being matured, of growing up. We like children need to approach you with humility and 
and, and, and to rest under the shadow of your wing, under your protection, but also like children, Father, we know you desire for us to grow and to learn and to have a deepening understanding and to, to, to be developed in the area of righteousness. Though we ourselves are not righteous, you are righteous. And call us to be like you are. As you said, Father, more than once in the Scriptures, be holy because I am holy. And so we want to grow up. We don't want to remain silly little children. We want to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ and become more like our Father so that as long as we are living, Father, in this world, we might love the way you do and show us less talked about the mercy, the compassion, the faithfulness that you show us. Only you can accomplish this, Lord. No sermon, no individual teaching, no pastor or elder, none of us on our own can accomplish this. Only you can accomplish this, Father. And we pray for this and ask your Spirit to be working in us and on us and through us even today that we might truly be called sons and daughters of God. Teach us now, Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so here's what I realized on our little vacation, our jaunt down to California. The Lord doesn't need our help to spice up the church. I like some chips that I ate yesterday. Spicy Thai potato chips. Way too hot. They didn't need it. And the church doesn't need to be spiced up. It doesn't even need to, for, the Lord doesn't need for us to determine what the church should look like. He's already told us. Well, we already know. We already have understanding of, of what the church is supposed to be. It seems to me that so many are trying to make the church into something. Whether it be something more appealing to the masses or, or something more appealing to those who attend there. Trying to make it into, and we could, we could be in danger of this thing. Trying to make the church into a rural barn community. Well, let's not try to make it anything other than what it is. I used this phrase before, I, I desire that we would be the church, being the church. Nothing more, nothing less. How do we know what the church is to look like? Well, we have a lot of hints in Scripture. Acts chapter 4, actually chapter 2, verse 42, tells us they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's so simple. Powerful. It's right on. Teaching. Fellowship. The bread of communion, I believe, is what's being talked about there. And prayer. And so we attempt to do all these things on a weekly basis, but also more often than that, I hope it's happening in your homes. I encourage you, by the way, to break bread together. If you go out to dinner with someone, if you're having a small group prayer meeting in your home, break bread together, share communion. Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. And we have indications from the first century church. They probably did it once a week or so, but also more often. When they gathered, when they got together, because that is our that is our greatest, most intimate moment of fellowship, not only with the Lord but with each other. When we break bread, the body of Christ, when we drink that juice, the blood of Jesus. But these are four uncomplicated facets of the church, and we don't need to be creative and add to them or detract from them. We just need to do what He set up. Follow along, be what he wants us to be. Now, when we were in California, again, we visited three churches. They were all unique, all very different in approach. One was very traditional, kind of an old school style church, even to the point of singing a cappella. That was my folks' church. That's the church I grew up in. 
The second one was about as far in the other direction as, as you can get. It was a church planted by a church in Australia, and now it's in South Orange County, and man was it hip. I mean, it was very happening. And I went out of there speaking with an Aussie accent. It was great. We really were all impacted by what we had seen. And, and as we were there, they had a band, and the band was awesome. I mean, they were tight. Electric guitars, Hannah said, man, it felt like I was at a Newsboys concert all morning. She just loved it. And it was very cool. And then, and then and it met in a movie theater, of all places. And then the pastor got up to preach. But he wasn't on the stage. He was on the screen. They had, they had sent the, the version of the Saturday night service from the night before in Australia, 17 hours difference, and sent it here and projected him up on the screen and now he's talking from the screen. I'm like, I could have stayed in my pajamas this morning and just watched this guy on TV. And he was funny and he was relevant and he was purposeful. And in his 45 minutes of talking, I began to realize I wasn't hearing the name of Jesus I'm pretty sure I didn't hear Jesus' name, but when he said, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of the prayer. I think that was the only time. And I realized that he brushed past three verses, not a passage, it wasn't as though he he sat in a passage, but referenced three verses as he kind of skimmed right on by, compared to 15 or 20 quotes from philosophers like Frankel and Kierkegaard. His message was full of some really funny jokes and humor and and some great application for living life and how to find your purpose. And I sat there just thinking, what's the point of this? And what are we doing? And we went on to the third church, which was the church that I served in in California. And it was kind of a, a cross in between. More conservative in that the pastor did get up and there was Bible teaching. And it was good teaching. But I also began to notice as I sat there, and, and forgive me, forgive my foolishness for a moment of being comparative. I, I don't mean to say that we're better or anything. Again, we're, we're still in the barn. But, but we sat there and I started looking around and no one had Bibles open. And I realized why. Because all the verses were projected up on the screen behind the pastor. You didn't need a Bible there. Let me just tell you something. I've had a handful of people over the years say, Rick, why don't you project the verses so everybody can see them? And I never will. I never will. You need to be looking in your own Bibles. You need to know how to function with this book, to rightly handle the word of truth. Part of what happens on Sunday morning when we gather is training with this book. So that when you go out of here in your home and you're trying to think of a verse, you can open up your Bible and at least know where to search. Because I'm not there with you every day. Thank goodness you'd be tired of me very quickly. Ask my family. But your word... The Word, God's Word, is with you always. We need to know how to function with this. And so, you know, doing what I do, I'm just thinking about all these things and processing all this and considering where we are. And in these churches that we visited, all of them shared fellowship, all shared communion, and all shared prayer. Those three aspects of Acts 2.42 were present. The one aspect that was lacking was teaching. Might as well hang signs outside of our churches like no Bible necessary or check your brain at the door if we're not going to have teaching in the church. Now someone has actually attached the phrase to the bridge, a teaching church. And what's interesting to me is when I heard that phrase attached, it was used in a derogatory manner. Oh, that's that teaching church. (laughs) I wear it as a badge of honor. 
at Teaching Church. I fear, gang, that far too many Christians know little or nothing of what their Bibles really say. At best, it has a dumbing effect. At worst, it can have a damning effect. Neither is good. The Apostle Paul spoke clearly to the issue of knowing who and what you believe. In fact, four times in his letters, and you Bible students may remember this, four times Paul made this statement, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you, the King James says, to be ignorant. Four times he says this, and it's interesting what the four things are that Paul wanted to be sure that we had information about, to be sure that we understood, to be sure that we were not ignorant of. Number one, 1 Corinthians 12.1, he says, I do not want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. He wanted us to know, the Lord wants us to know and understand the spiritual gifts. You can read about those in 1 Corinthians 12. Through the chapter, in Ephesians 4, in fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, great place to sit and study to understand and know the spiritual gifts, how they function, how God gives them, the Spirit, each to whom He wills. The second place is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, interesting. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the rapture of the church. There's a lot of, of flack against that theology especially the idea of a premillennial rapture a lot of flack today there wasn't several years ago and some of you may recall when the Left Behind series came out people were real excited a lot of people were going oh how cool and then kind of like it's a new theology and people were kind of jumping in with, with both feet and now it's kind of gone back to the place it was before where it's challenged or laughable or people are saying that, that didn't even appear until the 1800's with that guy John Darby whatever his name was he, he's the one who made up the whole rapture theology well I think Paul wrote about it and said don't be uninformed about it 1 Thessalonians 4 13 and following but the third and fourth times that Paul said I do not want you to be uninformed both had to do with the same issue and that is Israel Israel Romans 11.25 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 both referring to Israel and Paul says I don't want you to be uninformed. Something else that's been said about the bridge is that's the church that spends a lot of time talking about Israel. And I've answered that before by saying of course we do because we're in Ruth and you know Old Testament guess what? A lot of Israel. So we're going to hear about Israel. We're going to travel to Israel. We're going to try and understand Israel but it's not just because we're in the Hebrew Scriptures And it's not just because Pastor Rick has some kind of weird thing for the Jewish people. It's because Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed about Israel. And so I want to take some time this morning. I want to use this, our study through Ruth, and understand what this beautiful companion has to say, has to teach us, has to indicate to us about Israel and our relationship. You see, the beautiful companion that we're studying... This woman, Ruth, she is an outsider brought in. That's, that's kind of another underlying theme of the book of Ruth. In fact, I was going to talk just about outsiders coming in, but I believe what we're going to talk about is more important. But every Gentile Christian, which is most of us, if not all of us here this morning, began as outsiders. It's easy to forget, isn't it? Especially once we get comfy and cozy in our church fellowship. It's easy to forget what it was like when we were not comfy and cozy, when this wasn't home, when we didn't have a place where we could connect with other believers and learn the Word and worship the Father, we forget what it's like to be outsiders. But we were all outsiders. 
Every one of us. And Ruth was that. The outsider brought in. We've seen in this book already that it's the story of the harvest. It exemplifies, in, in a prophetic type, it exemplifies the bringing in of the harvest. The saving of souls. The ingathering of all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. It is the story of the gospel. Ruth. And I don't want you to be uninformed about the gospel. Knowing what that is. I don't know what the statistics are. I'd like to do a a survey across America. Just in America, I'd like to survey every church and every Christian and see, just ask the question, what is the gospel? And see how many Christians sitting in church on a Sunday morning can actually articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can't, that's probably where you ought to start today. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you can't verbalize the gospel, you need to learn how. Let me help you. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the Gospel. So memorize that verse and at least you will be able to articulate the Gospel of Jesus. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promises. Some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so we know that it is not God's will for anyone to be left on the outside, to be left in Moab. And so just as He did for Ruth the outsider, so He has done for you and for me. He has brought us inside, back into the land of promise, into His family. He has adopted us into His household forever. But while this story is about Ruth the Gentile brought in, it is also the story of the very Jewish Naomi who was herself redeemed to the land. You could just as easily call this the book of Naomi as call it the book of Ruth. In fact, what's interesting is the story begins and ends not with Ruth, but with Naomi. There's more reference to Naomi than there is to Ruth in this book. And we need to spend some time and consider what does this mean, this Jew... This person of Israel who was driven out of the land in a time of famine, experienced a horrible life outside the land in Moab for ten years, losing her husband and both of her sons. Nothing but death and despair until she had nothing. But then she is brought back into the land and it is there that Naomi finds redemption. Paul says, Romans 11.25 I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God is doing something. Among us. He's doing something with you, with me, with Gentiles, with outsiders. We're in the season of the outsider, if you will. The age of grace, the dispensation of the Gentile. But God has not forgotten about Israel. God remembers His people. In a great little book called The Romance of Redemption, it's a, a commentary of the book of Ruth by M.R. DeHaan, written back in the mid-60s. DeHaan wrote, No man can understand God's program for this age until he sees clearly God's plan for Israel in the land. And God's entirely different program for the church as the heavenly bride of Christ. Israel in the land, the church as the bride of Christ, two different programs, two things that God is doing that do impact each other. 
Haran doesn't believe we can even understand what God's doing in the world today unless we understand what's going on with Israel. And that understanding, my friends, begins with this one. And I have truly come to believe this. We owe an incredible, eternal debt of love to Israel and the Jewish people. We owe them. I've been asked by a number of people over the past few years, why all this interest in Israel? Why the emphasis in your teaching? What does Israel have to do with me? And what do I have to do with Israel? That's been the most recent question. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fun to talk about, and it's interesting to learn the history and all that if you're into that, but what does that have to do with me? And what do I have to do with the Jews? I'd like to try and answer some of that with a little help from Ruth today. Remember that the book of Ruth is not only a historical story, but it's a prophetical story as well. Each character paints a picture in prophecy. Even the backdrop of Ruth, that backdrop of the harvest, And what's interesting to me is the historical Jewish Bible, not the Jewish Bible today, but the original uh, placement of the scriptures in the Tanakh placed the book of Ruth in a section called the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. Now, today if you look at the Jewish scriptures, you'll see Ruth along with some of the other stories and the Psalms and and Esther stuck over there. But, But early on, Ruth was among the books of prophecy. Because Naomi, as we've already seen, is a precious type of Israel. Boaz powerfully portrays our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Ruth beautifully reveals the church, the bride of the kinsman Redeemer, the bride of Christ. Ruth, the bride of Boaz. But Naomi, Naomi shows us something of Israel. And I believe by looking at the relationship of Ruth and Naomi, we can begin to understand something of the relationship between the Christian and the Jew. It's an important relationship. Understand that it was through Naomi and Boaz, two Jews, that the Gentile Ruth found her salvation. Without them, she would have remained in Moab. Without them, she would not have found her connection, her tie to Jesus Christ, even being in that genealogy listed in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. And in the same way, our salvation, my friends, has come through the Jews. Some might say, hang on there, I'm I'm a Christian, not a Judean. (laughs) How can you tell me my salvation comes from the Jews? My salvation comes from Jesus alone. How can we say that the Jews are somehow responsible for my salvation? And my friends, this statement would appall many in the historical church. A lot of great leaders would be absolutely sickened at the thought, would reject it outright. Leaders like Martin Luther, who had no use for the Jews... Leaders like Augustine who said, their time is over. They missed their chance. Now it's our shot. Well, there was a Samaritan woman who once questioned Jesus about her outsider people's status, their place in God's overall plan. Listen to what Jesus said, John 4.19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) Right on. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say... That in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, kind of wiping the whole slate clean, He says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, we Jews, He's saying, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Salvation is from the Jews. Let that settle for a moment. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus says. Literally, salvation comes from the Jewish people. 
Well, how can that be? Well, there's several different things we could consider. One, the Bible, for the most part, was written by Jews. And without the Bible, we wouldn't have the source or the understanding that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In fact, with the exception of Luke and a couple of lines written by Nebuchadnezzar, a few little places here and there, the Bible is exclusively written by Jews. So I'll tell you something, if you want to understand the Bible better, you need to understand the Hebrew culture. It makes a huge difference in the reading and, and the impact of the Word. We also know that the church itself was started almost exclu- well, exclusively by Jews in Jerusalem. The apostles were all Jews by birth and by upbringing and by faith. The early believers in the church were completely Jewish. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts all the way through chapter 7, it was 100% a Jewish church. It wasn't until chapter 8 when God said, All right, I told you I wanted you to be my witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. So persecution broke out. And in Acts chapter 8, finally the church dispersed and started to spread out. It was after that, coming up in about Acts chapter 15, where suddenly the very Jewish church in Jerusalem had to have a council meeting to decide whether or not they were going to allow Gentiles in. It was a Jewish movement. Even the Romans considered Christianity to be a Jewish sect, an offshoot. They met in the temple. They kept Sabbath. They kept circumcision. The same traditions were kept by this early century, the first century church that had been kept for 2,000 years. And we understand that Jesus himself was a Jew from the tribe of Judah, which is where, by the way, the name Jew comes from, Judah. It's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. But I don't need to tell you how much this world has hated the Jew. How much even, and this amazes me, even this study that we're doing this morning, even talking about Israel as we are right now, would be offensive in many churches in America. The Presbyterian Church of America, and if you have a Presbyterian background, my apologies, but this is true, the Presbyterian Church in America has stated in their you know, overall denominational board that people need to withdraw any kind of support from Israel whatsoever. Withdraw financial support to pull back from any help because, because it's not right what's going on over there and the, the, the uh, you know, oppression that they're placing on the Palestinian people. There are churches this morning who would be offended by the statement that salvation is from the Jews even though Jesus is the one who made it. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised. Deuteronomy 28.37, Moses said, You'll become a horror. You're going to be a proverb. You're going to be a taunt or a byword among all the people where the Lord sends you. Psalm 102 verse 8 says, My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. And placed right in the middle of that yellow star that Hitler had sewn onto all the shirts and clothing of the Jewish people in his day was the word Jude. The name. Which was a byword and a taunt. You go to Yad Vashem today. At the beginning of that, you, you see what they, what they do in the, in the Holocaust Museum there is they show the progression of world hatred toward the Jews leading up to the Holocaust itself. They have on display board games that are anti-Jewish board games. Uh, cartoon comics for children, for German children, showing Jews with huge noses and, and making fun of them in all sorts of ways to, to begin to prepare people to hate the Jewish people so ultimately they could kill the Jewish people. And you can see the whole thing laid out there. Even the word, even the name Jew being a byword. 
Is it any wonder though that this people should be so attacked? If you were Satan, not saying that you are, but if you were, what people group in history would you go after the hardest? Be the Jews. At first it would be the Jews because you hear somewhere that you know Messiah is supposed to come through them. So if you can wipe them out completely, Messiah can't come, God's promises fail, everything's good. And so we see the slaughter of innocent children going all the way back to Moses when Pharaoh commanded that every male child under two be destroyed. That was a satanic thing. And coming up all the way through the ages, even at the birth of Jesus, again, the slaughter of all male children under two to try and keep Messiah from coming. That was a satanic move. And in Hitler's day, and actually all through the ages, they are the chosen ones through whom God determined to send his Messiah, Messiah, another very Jewish word, into the world. And Satan has chosen this people group to attack more malignantly than any group has ever been attacked in the history of the world. They shouldn't have survived. They shouldn't be here. There should be no nation Israel. But there is. And it's not happenstance that brought it to be. It's the determination of the sovereign will of God the Father. That's why Israel exists today. Try as some might though. We cannot extricate ourselves from our Jewish heritage as Christians. But it's not a heritage that concerns me. It's our current and future relationship that must be understood because, and listen to me, our greatest blessing, our greatest blessing necessitated Israel's greatest tragedy. The fact that we sing songs of praise to the Lord this morning, that we understand God's grace, that we are the outsiders brought in, it necessitated a tragedy of historic proportions. Again, Imar Dahan wrote the following. He said, Israel must be set aside and banished from her land to pine away among the nations in order to bring in the bride of her kinsman redeemer, the church. Just like Naomi. Banished from the land, driven from the land because of famine. That had to happen for Ruth to be brought in. Had Naomi and Elimelech and their families stayed in Israel, Ruth never would have found her life among the Jewish people. Never would have been brought into the land. That had to happen. And the loss of her husband and her sons in Moab had to happen. In the same way that Israel driven from the land, it had to happen so that we could be brought in. We see this, he says, illustrated in the exile of Naomi's family from the land of Bethlehem. In order that through her exile, Ruth the Gentile might be prepared for and brought to her husband Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, our picture of Jesus. When Ruth was ready for a husband, then Naomi returned to her formal home. She did not become part of the bride herself, nor was she left in exile. Neither did Ruth take Naomi's place. Hear me on that. Ruth did not take Naomi's place in the family. And Naomi's final restoration, Dahan writes, was more glorious than her former estate. Naomi is the Jew cast out. And through this casting out, Ruth the Gentile is brought in. Ruth the Gentile becomes the bride. Naomi does not. But Naomi still has a place. There is still a redemption for her. A restoration for her. But this is the tragic mistake many in the church have made across the years. That Ruth does not take Naomi's place. Naomi's redemption at the end of the story is greater than it was at the beginning. In fact, look in Ruth chapter 4 verse 13. It tells us that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went in to her. And that's the last we hear of Ruth. 
says the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son and then the women said to Naomi not to Ruth to Naomi they said blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the neighboring women gave him a name saying, A son has been born, not to Ruth, to Naomi. So they named him Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David, on down the line, the father of Jesus Christ, by human estimation. So in the same way Ruth does not replace Naomi, Christianity does not replace Israel. All of the glorious and I might add unconditional kingdom promises made by God to Israel throughout the Hebrew scriptures are not suddenly ripped away from Israel at the advent of the church. They don't suddenly disappear. While Israel is cast out, ignored, rejected, and forgotten. Great theologians, as I said before, Augustine, Luther, among many others, actually believed that sadly Israel is done. God is through with the Jew. This morning I invite you to consider a Christian's biblical response to Israel. A biblical understanding of the program God has for Israel, separate, different than the one He has for the church in which we are presently engaged. You might want to jot these down and give you three things quickly to consider. Number one, recognize Israel's purpose in God's program. It begins by recognizing that God is not done. That he still has a plan, that he still has a purpose for Israel, that he's still working among and in the Jewish people to bring out his final result. We need to turn now, keep your finger there in Ruth, and go over to the book of Romans. For honestly, you cannot talk about the relationship between the church and Israel without going to the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. This is the consummate teaching in the New Testament about the church's response, the Christian's response to Israel. And people who say, well, you're just talking about Israel because of the Old Testament. No, we're going to go right to the New. And hear what the Apostle Paul had to say about this people. He devotes, by the way, three full chapters to the history, the purpose, past, present, and future of Israel. And he does it right in the middle of his greatest teaching on Christianity. There's a reason for that. Romans chapter 9, listen to this, verse 1. Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jewish people, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Don't miss that. Paul just called Jesus God. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. Now see, that's what I always used to think. The Old Testament was plan A. When it didn't work, we had to go to plan B, Jesus. (laughs) It's not how it works. God never had a plan A, B, or C. He only had and always has had one plan that he has worked out from the beginning. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 
Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but, quote, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. This is exactly what we already heard from Jesus, that salvation is from the Jews. If not for the existence of the Jewish people, God chose the Jewish people, and you know this, to send Messiah. He chose them to write, to keep the word. He chose them to bring so much of the glory and the promises and the riches and the wonder that we experience now in our Christian lives. We owe a debt to Israel, to the Jewish people. He continues in verse in chapter 9. And he talks about God's past dealings with Israel. You can read all through that. Declaring his sovereign grace. And he makes it clear that God is not through with the Jew. Look at verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Literally where it says quickly, cutting it short. So there's going to be a time where God just says, that's it, we're done. Verse 29, just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, which is Lord of hosts, had left, us, had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Unfortunately, there are many today who believe the Jewish people are like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're done. They're history. They're wiped out. Not true. Not according to the word. Why does Paul do this? Why does he plop down this theology of Israel in the midst of his Holy Spirit-inspired explanation of the church? Because we go eight chapters of Romans, it's all church theology, it's all Christianity, it's all the, the fun, fundamental foundational principles of the church. It's a great book to read to understand our Christian faith. But he gets to chapter 9 and suddenly, boom, he's talking about Israel. He does it for three solid chapters. Why then? Why there? It's because, my friends, the whole past, present, and future of Israel illustrates God's faithfulness. What Les was talking about at communion? His faithfulness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And if God does not keep his promises to the Jews, what makes you think he's going to keep his promises to you? If God is not faithful in all of his dealings, then we shouldn't expect him to be faithful in any of his dealings. You see, Allah is like that. Allah is not faithful in his dealings. And a good Muslim would tell you that. The follower, the second in line after Muhammad, some of you recall this historically, the next caliph or whatever they're called who came in after Muhammad said, I can live a perfect life, I can have one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth be headed into heaven, and in the last second Allah can say, no, you're out of here, and I can burn in hell. I'm not real interested in following a God who can change his mind that quickly. I want to follow a God who is faithful. And with the Jewish people we have seen and will see God's faithfulness and it will be declared throughout all of eternity. If he does not fulfill his promises to Israel, then guess what? Throughout eternity, God will be seen as one who is faithless. But he is not faithless. We are he is not. Now Paul moves into chapter 10 of Romans, declaring that though Israel as a nation has been set aside temporarily, 
And the church as a people have been called out where salvation is concerned. And listen, this is tricky thinking here. Where salvation is concerned, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. What does that mean, no difference? Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, salvation always comes personally and individually through faith in Jesus Christ. So let me be clear about that. I've said this before. The Jews who will be saved when Paul says all Israel will be saved, that salvation will be, must be, can only be through faith in Jesus Christ. Now there are those who teach in the Christian Zionist movement who teach that Israel will be saved because they're Israel. Not so. You cannot find salvation outside of Jesus. Jew or Gentile, there is no difference. That's what all of Romans chapter 10 is about. But look at verse 9 of chapter 10. If we confess, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this is important. This distinction is is critical. And I actually had to kind of work through this for about a half an hour in my office to, to get to where I understood it. I'll try and explain this to you. Because a grave error often occurs here. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile as far as individual faith in Jesus Christ is concerned, as far as salvation is concerned. But the church has historically confused a person with a people, an individual with a nation. What do you mean? If we confuse our personal choice with God's prophetic purpose, we get confused. I have, you have, every Jew or Gentile, every person alive on the earth today has the opportunity to make a personal decision for Jesus. To become Christian, a follower of Christ. There is no difference. All through Romans 10, Paul says this. There's no difference. Jew or Gentile, everybody can come to faith in Jesus. But there is a difference between people groups. Between the Jews as a people and Christians as a people. There is a difference there. No difference in the salvation, but there is a difference with the people. Just because there's no personal individual salvation outside of Christ doesn't mean the Jews as a people are tossed out and forgotten eternally. Does that make sense? If not, go back and get the tape and listen to it a few times and maybe it will. God has a plan that is unfolding with a people. He has a plan that's unfolding for the Jewish people overall. The individual Jew alive today can make a decision for Jesus, can give their life to Christ. But as a people, Israel are still part of God's equation. He has a plan that he's working out. And remember, God is faithful. Look at chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. They're not cast out. I don't know how you can say it any clearer than that. God still has a plan for Israel. Through the Jews, we know, Paul said this in chapter 9, through them came the prophets, the promises, the adoption, even the Mashiach, the Messiah Jesus. But watch this. Go down to verse 11, chapter 11. I say then, 
Paul writes, they did not stumble so as to fall. Did they? Can't never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. I call this the holy hoop. Okay? By their transgression, salvation comes to the Gentiles to make them jealous that they might be saved too. God's got it all worked out. It says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. It's astounding. Salvation truly is from the Jews. And the Lord used even their rejection for your reconciliation. He used their rebellion for our restoration. And he knew they were going to rebel. He knew from the beginning he was going to choose a people and lay out a law and give them all the promises under heaven. And he knew they were going to reject it. But he also knew that by their rejection the word would go out to the rest of the world. And non-Jewish Gentiles would be saved. Had the Jewish people not rejected Jesus there would not have been a crucifixion, a resurrection or even a hope for salvation. By their rejection we find salvation. God knew the heart of Israel and His plan worked perfectly. They are called the chosen ones because they were the instrument God used to bring salvation to mankind while revealing His grace and glory for all eternity. And that's something we need not forget. The whole purpose of life, the whole purpose of the world is not just salvation. The purpose is the glory of God. Because this life is going to end. We're going to experience our salvation. We'll be in the presence of the Lord, but it's not over. There's an eternity that follows that. And what God is doing right now is declaring His glory, His faithfulness, His mercy, as much as He's declaring a path to salvation for us. I wonder if there will be a day, sometime in eternity, where we actually start to just forget the fact that we were even saved. Because we are so wrapped up in the glory of God. It will probably happen. And then we'll remember again the mercy, the grace that He showed us. And we'll praise Him even more. But the glory of God is the issue. The glory of God is the focus. And that's part of the reason why He's still holding on to Israel. Because He will be glorified in the fulfillment of His promises to them. So we recognize Israel's purpose. But Paul cautions the Gentiles... He cautions us, number two, to realize our place in God's program. Recognize Israel's purpose, but realize your place, my, my place, and what God is doing. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were once separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, I, we could say living in Moab, you who are outside, Paul says, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.10, You once were not a people, but you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You could call this Ruthian Christianity. <laughs> it's a recognition that I, like Ruth, was not a people, but now am a part of a people. I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy. And we would do well to humbly and gratefully and graciously accept the overwhelming gifts of God's grace 
brought to us through Jesus Christ via Israel. Can you imagine a child at a birthday party or on Christmas morning upon opening the gifts the child cries out wow I deserve this tearing open another gift and saying yep I earned that one opening a third and saying boy I worked hard for this as parents wouldn't you stop giving gifts I mean (laughs) in a heartbeat I thought can you give those back because you did nothing to deserve this you didn't do anything to earn me. I, we give these gifts on your birthday, Christmas morning, whatever. We give these gifts because we're good people to our kids most of the time. God says, if, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to those who ask? Romans chapter 11, verse 17, Paul says, If some of the branches, talking about Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree do not be arrogant toward the branches but if you are arrogant remember that it is not you who supports the root but the root supports you you'll say then well branches were broken off and I might be grafted in quite right They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise (laughs) you also will be cut off. Paul makes it clear. It goes to our heart, our attitude as Christians. We don't support the root. You might have a missionary in Israel that you support. You might support some kind of a Jewish fund over there, but guess what? You're not supporting Israel. You don't support the root. The root supports you. The riches of the glory of of Christ, of the Word of God, of our spiritual inheritance comes from and through the people known as Israel. Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that Ruth had the right attitude. When she approaches Boaz, when she sees what he's doing, how he's blessing her, it tells us Ruth fell on her face, bowed to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Every time... Words of worship and praise slip out of our mouths. My friends, we need to realize we are foreigners who are brought in. The attitude of thanksgiving for what has been done that allows us the freedom and the joy of worship and connection to God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. She fell on her face. Wow. How have I found favor? She even says over in verse 13, You've spoken kindly to me you've comforted me you've spoken kindly to your maidservant though I am not like one of your maidservants I'm not one of the chosen people and yet I've been chosen I'm not one of his holy ones and yet I've been made holy by Jesus and that's the heart I believe the Lord desires to develop in you and me as people and as a people gratefully grafted another t-shirt by the way thank you to whoever made me the t-shirt that says real men repent it was left up here in a bag for me Real men repent. I actually have a t-shirt. I said that. So I'm going to start saying that a lot, I think. 
Because I said, I'd love to have a t-shirt that says, Real Men Repent. And a couple weeks later, one showed up. I'd love to have a t-shirt that says, Gratefully Grafted. Okay? That's the attitude that Jesus is calling us to. To be gratefully grafted. To recognize, not to cast out and say, Ah, Israel, they blew it, they had their chance. But to recognize, wow, I now have an inheritance. I'm involved, I'm part of this. God has drawn me into the big picture of salvation and I get to watch it all unfold. Amazing, wonderful. Why me, Lord? Why would you choose me? I'm amazed. Now, we didn't earn any of this. We didn't discover, develop, or deliver our righteousness to the Lord and say, look what we've done. We deserve deserve these gifts, these presents. Realize our place in God's program. That we are supported by, not supporters of, Israel. Number three and final one, respond with personal compassion for the people of Israel. Respond with personal compassion. I realize we're on North Whidbey Island in Washington State. I realize we're 11 hours time difference from the nation of Israel today. I realize how long it takes to get on a plane, trust me, and fly to Israel. I realize how few of us even have relationships with Jewish people here in Washington, although a few do. But I still believe in this far and here on Sunday morning that the Lord would develop in us a personal compassion for Israel. Look at verse 23. It says, They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be misinformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Remember Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are completed. Until then. And then something else is going to happen. And so, verse 26, all Israel, Paul says, will be saved. Just as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. This is a quote from God. This is my covenant promise to Israel. I will remove their sin. I will come from Zion. I will save. I will rescue Israel. God made that promise. I didn't. You didn't. The Lord says this is my covenant. And I'll tell you something my friends. When God makes a covenant it stands. There's only one covenant that God ever made with Israel that was conditional, and that was the Mosaic Law. Long before that, God said to Abraham, I will bless you. And through you, all the nations, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And I will bless the one who blesses you, Abraham, and I will curse the one who curses you. Boy, I, I hope that we don't end up cursing Israel as people or as a nation by the way I saw something that's interesting to me Rudy Giuliani and this is not a political statement well it kind of is but I'm not promoting him as a candidate I know there are a lot of things uh, especially the Christian right in America are concerned about with Giuliani as, as a possible candidate for the Republican Party but he did come out just the other day and make a statement a bold statement that I haven't seen any other candidate make and it really impresses me 
He said, we have no business supporting a Palestinian state which will just raise up a state of terror against our friends Israel. Wow. I agree with that. Big time. Respond with personal compassion for the people of Israel. Verse 28 says, For the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. And we take that verse and we apply it to ourselves. But it's applied here to Israel. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, but because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that, watch this, so that, underline this if you will, so that He may show mercy to all. Isn't that what Les was sharing at Communion? I get tickled every time I hear the communion message flow right into where I know we're going. That God would show mercy. That's the big picture. God makes it crystal clear what His intentions for Israel are. Again, it's that holy hoop. The Jewish rebellion leading to Gentile redemption leading to Jewish restoration. And God knew it was all going to work out that way and that's the plan that he laid in from the beginning. Why was Boaz, go back to Ruth now, why was Boaz so kind to Ruth in the first place? And there's a one word answer for that, Naomi. Naomi. Verse 11 says, Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. That how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. Which Lord? The God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz had a heart for Ruth before he had even met her because he had heard about her kindness to Naomi. Ruth, the Gentile, outsider brought inside that picture of the Christian showing kindness to Naomi, the picture of the Jewish people. And it's interesting, by the way, to note there's a parallel passage to those two verses, Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, in Matthew chapter 25. It's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a final judgment of nations. It's not judgment day as as some think it is. It's, It's a judgment actually that follows the tribulation period where Jesus sits on his throne and judges the nations. And his judgment of the nations is based on how they treated Israel during that time of tribulation. Where do you get that? Matthew 25 verse 40, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Again, that's a passage we take and we spread out to these brothers of mine being all people. You can do that, but the context indicates that when Jesus says these brothers of mine, he is talking about his brothers in the flesh, Israel. To the extent that you visit them in the prisons, to the extent that you feed them when they're hungry, clothe them when they're naked, visit them when they're sick, to the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, Jesus says, you did it to me. Jesus, I believe, is impressed. In the same way that Boaz was impressed, Jesus is impressed when we as little Ruths care about Naomi. 
have compassion for and show mercy toward Israel. An entrance into the millennial kingdom of Christ has everything to do with how a person treats Jesus' brothers, Israel. Psalm 122, verse 6. It says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And I ask you, I invite you to ask yourself this question today. What are your intentions regarding Israel? What are your thoughts toward the Jewish people? You might say, well, Rick, what can I do? Again, here, Northwood, the island, separated way away from Israel and, and, and Jewish people in general. You can begin by recognizing their purpose in God's plan. Having a correct biblical theology considering Israel. You can humbly realize your place in God's plan. And you can personally show compassion for the Jewish people. How do I do that? Start with prayer. Pray that they will come to that point of acceptance and understanding, not just as individual people, but as a people. Pray for the salvation of Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pursue acts of mercy and compassion toward Israel. Dahan said, Our salvation was made possible by Israel's fall. Who can estimate the debt of gratitude that every believer owes to Israel? He writes, Anti-Semitism is the most inconsistent and unreasonable thing for anyone who claims to be a Christian. It reveals a total lack of knowledge of the Bible and God's great plan. It is inconceivable that any true born-again Christian can have anything but love and compassion for God's scattered people. A Jew-baiting Christian is a contradiction and illogical monstrosity. And I couldn't agree more. What else can I do? You can go to Israel yourself. Oh, I knew it was coming. Lord willing, in October of 2008, a year from this fall, we'll make a return trip to Israel. And you can go. And some say, oh, I love to go to Israel because of what it does for me. I open up the scriptures and and they they just come alive. And and the experience of being there. And those of you who went this last time, you know that. Wow, it just does something to you. And others will say, I see no personal value or gain from visiting the land. I'm not into that area. I don't want to go. In both cases... We're missing the point of going to Israel. I'm finally starting to understand this. That the point of traveling to Israel has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the solidarity that we show the Jews as a people. It has to do with being willing to go even if it looks a little dicey. Cheryl and I sat at dinner the last night we were in California and listened to my uncle talk about how crazy we are for going to Israel oh we were praying for you while you were there not sure he was but he says we were praying for you we were so worried about you and Cheryl and I are looking at each other just going you just don't understand there's nothing to be afraid of there because we didn't go alone we went with the Lord and he knows what he's doing I want to read to you something as, as we finish out this is a little booklet everybody who, who went on that trip and who goes on future trips will be able to uh, get a hold of. It's by Derek Prince. And it's called Our Debt to Israel. Prince lived from 1915 to 2003, so just died a few years ago. He wrote the following. 
Few Gentile Christians are aware of the deeply ingrained but seldom stated attitude of the Jews toward them. The Jews have suffered persecution in many different forms from many different peoples, but, and listen to this, in their view of history, their cruelest and most consistent persecutors have been Christians. Before we reject this view as untrue or unfair, let's briefly glance at the kind of historical facts upon which it is based. In the Middle Ages, the Crusaders, on their way through Europe to liberate the Holy Land, massacred entire Jewish communities. Men, women, and children, numbering many hundreds. Later, when they succeeded in capturing Jerusalem, they shed more blood and displayed more cruelty than any of Jerusalem's many conquerors before them, including Islam, including the Muslims, except perhaps under the Romans, under Titus. All this they did, and this is the sad part, in the name of Christ, with the cross as their sacred emblem. For this reason, I'm personally never happy to see any genuine presentation of the gospel described by the word crusade. <laughs> Later still, in the ghettos of Europe and Russia, it was Christian priests carrying crucifixes who led the mobs against the Jewish communities, pillaging, burning their homes and their synagogues, raping their women, and murdering those who sought to defend themselves. Their justification for this was it was the Jews who had murdered Christ. Again, within living memory, the Nazis, in their systematic extermination of six million Jews in Europe, used as their instruments men who were professing Christians, mainly Lutherans and Catholics. And I'm not bashing anybody here, but this is history, gang. Furthermore, no major Christian group in Europe or elsewhere raised their voices to protest or condemn the Nazi party against the Jews. No Christians stood up and said, hey, maybe that what's going on, maybe that's not good. Christianity fell silent during the Holocaust. In the eyes of the Jews, multitudes of Christians stand condemned merely by their silence. So Prince writes, to undo the effect upon the Jewish people of these experiences and countless others like them will take more than tracts or sermons. It will require acts, both individual and collective, that are manifestly as kind and merciful as the previous acts were unjust and cruel. That, to me, is the right reason to go to Israel. That you can get face to face with the people in the land and show honor and offer dignity and show acts of mercy and kindness. Our own Jonathan Zilstra has spent months there doing that very thing. Weirdest thing in the world that he would just up and choose to move to Israel. What a crazy guy. And yet he lives out day to day while he's there acts of service and mercy and kindness. Why would someone do that? Because Jonathan came to understand a Christian's biblical response to the Jewish people. You know someone Jewish at work. Show them kindness. Show them mercy. Honor their faith. You'll have a much more likely chance to share Jesus with them if you do it through the Old Testament and through Judaism than you will coming as a crusader Christian. And when you go to Israel, notice I said when, not if, when you go to Israel, you will find that there is an attitude of 
just kind of keeping it at an arm's length, you know. We're glad to take your tour dollars, <laughs> but not sure we trust you. And yet there is a tide that's turning among Jewish people toward especially evangelical, in fact, literally evangelical, premillennial, pre-tribulation, rapture-oriented Christians. <laughs> and that, that came from our Jewish tour guide. And he even made that comment. You guys that are pre-what is it? And I said, tribulational, yeah, that. <laughs> Showing acts of kindness to Israel. Hitler called his barbaric attempt to exterminate the Jews from the earth he called it the final solution I find that interesting because Hitler's dead and the Jews are back in the land God's final solution for Israel is the final redemption of all history and you and I we have our redemption in Jesus Christ, we have our salvation today as of this moment. It's a done deal. Israel is looking toward theirs. Zechariah promises, I'm going to bring them through the fire. Two-thirds are going to fall, but one-third is going to come through the other side. I believe that that one-third is the all-Israel who Paul says will be saved. Not just as individual people, but as a group. And it's bound to happen. It's going to happen. It's the final redemption of history. Just as, by the way, the final solution in the book of Ruth had nothing to do with Ruth, but was all about Naomi. It's a complete and beautiful picture. And Isaiah 52 verse 1 says, Awake! Awake! Clothe yourself in your strength. O Zion, clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. And you will be redeemed without money. Father, we are so amazed at your faithfulness. And we recognize that though we can praise you all the day long for our salvation, it is your completion of all promises and plans that will bring about the great glory that you so richly deserve. Father, I'm so excited because we get front row seats as we watch your plan unfold, understanding your plan for the church, your design for the Gentiles to find salvation in Jesus. But now that we're saved, it's as though, Father, we're sitting front row in a great auditorium and the stage is set and Israel is back in the land and, Lord, we get to watch this happen. But, Father, I ask, would you show us how, reveal to us as a fellowship how we can not just sit and watch it happen, but how we can take part in making it happen. Father, I ask for opportunity. For those who who have Jewish friends, I ask for opportunity for conversation to begin about shared faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I pray, Father, for us as a fellowship to continue to pursue and have eyes open to any opportunities by which we can show mercy to your chosen people. Because, Lord, we realize when we show mercy... When we are faithful, we look like you. And we want to look like you in Jesus' name. Amen.